Again, we are blessed to have the Reverend Jonathan Wagner preaching God's word for us today. Jonathan is now senior pastor of the Covenant Presbyterian Church, EPC, in Monroe, and of course was the dynamic leader of our student ministry here about, what, 12, 15 years ago? It's been a while. Yeah. All right, Jonathan. <laughs> Uh, from Covenant EPC in Monroe, Louisiana. I know that there are some connections uh, between this church and, and Monroe, and so uh, I'm thrilled to be here. Before we pray and, and read scripture, the scripture passage this morning, I just wanted to say that I, I do count it a tremendous privilege and honor to be asked to participate in uh, this worship service on this momentous occasion. It's even more of a privilege and honor to be asked to participate by preaching uh, the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. Uh, Startville First Presbyterian Church uh, holds a dear place in, in my heart, in my family's heart. You all gave me an opportunity to share my gifts, serve to disciple me in the faith and mentor me in the ministry and supported me financially and with prayer through my time in seminary. So I am deeply indebted to all of you. I can certainly say that I, I would not be where I am today without uh, my time here, without all of you. And what a wonderful place to have really begun my ministry. We are celebrating today the rich history of this church. And I think I am accurate in saying that I have not served any other church that was established 200 years ago. Even among the churches that I served while I was in Pittsburgh and many of the churches up there were started in the 1800s. The oldest chartered church in Washita Parish, Louisiana, where I am currently serving, was the first Presbyterian Church of Monroe, which was formed around 1855 and chartered in 1860. Unfortunately, FPC Monroe closed its doors a few years back. So we should count it as no small thing, what we are celebrating today. And we should recognize this morning that it is by God's grace and good providence that First Presbyterian Church has enjoyed such a long and fruitful ministry here in Octibaha County. And what an amazing, amazing history this church has, beginning with the Mayhew Mission to the Choctaw Nation uh, that was established by the Reverend Cyrus Kingsbury. I hope that all of you have read this history and know the roots of this church. I'm going to be saying a few words about the, that this morning in my sermon. I think we are all aware that the history of this church has not been without uh, its difficulties, one of which happened a few years ago, leaving the old mainline denomination and moving into the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, which I am uh, personally thankful for. I personally rejoiced over that. Uh, but this church has endured and has remained steadfast in the faith. And I'm very proud to call this church my home church and to be a part of its history, uh, however small a role I play. So now as we prepare to read God's holy word, let us ask the Holy Spirit, who first breathed out his word to help us to hear, believe, and apply his word to our lives for the building up of God's church, the body of Christ. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, your word is more precious than fine gold. 
and sweeter than the purest honey. As we now approach your holy, inerrant, infallible word, prepare us to receive it. I grant that our hearts and minds might not only be open before you, but also humble and teachable in order that the good news of your love sh would shine before our eyes and delight our senses so that we cannot help but to respond to it with wonder, faith, and trust. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Our scripture reading this morning is from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Hear the word of the Lord. It is written, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Immediately before coming to Corinth, the Apostle Paul was in the city of Athens. And we are told this in the 17th chapter of Acts, which was written by one of Paul's companions, Luke, who we know to be the author of the gospel according to Luke. Now, Athens was quite an interesting city in Paul's day. For one, it was filled with pagan temples. The Parthenon, the great temple to Athena, the Greek goddess of wisdom, was there in Athens, as were temples for the goddess Roma and for the emperor Augustus and uh, many other Roman pagan deities. We read in Acts 17, 16, that when Paul went into Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. A member of the court of the infamous Emperor Nero once jokingly said, it is easier to find a god in Athens than a man. Athens was also the center of the arts and learning in the ancient world. It was famous for its playwrights, its historians, and its philosophers. During the golden age of Athens, Hippocrates, the father of medicine, called Athens home, as well as Socrates, who is considered the founder of Western philosophy. This means that Athens was also home to the philosophers that followed Socrates. So Plato's Academy and Aristotle's Lyceum were both there. Needless to say, a high premium was placed on knowledge in Athens. Athens then was a place of intellectual and cultural significance in the ancient world. It's widely known as the birthplace of Western civilization, the cradle of democracy. It was a place where ideas were introduced, discussed, and debated. And so probably, not surprisingly, we see Paul in Acts 17 engaging the philosophers in debate. Having been disheartened by all the idolatry, Paul wanted to share about the one true God and who he has revealed himself to be in his son, Jesus Christ. So he went not to the synagogue, as was his usual custom, but he went to the marketplace. 
which was where ideas were shared. Now, Paul was an educated man, so he knew how to communicate in the world of academia. He knew how to argue in intellectual debate. And as Paul gave a defense of the Christian faith, many found what he was saying to be fascinating. And they asked him to share these things that they considered new teachings. But Luke tells us this. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. In other words, they entertained what Paul said because they really enjoyed tossing around new ideas. But despite his efforts to share Christ with them, Paul wasn't very successful at what he hoped to accomplish. Luke acknowledges, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. There were a few who were still curious and there were some who, Luke tells us, joined Paul and believed. But Luke seems to have left Athens discouraged and feeling somewhat defeated. This is all very important because it sets the context for his time in Corinth. Paul's experience in Athens helps us to understand what Paul says here in the second chapter of his first letter to the Corinthians. You see, Paul seemed to have recognized in Athens that trying to argue someone to faith in Jesus Christ was of very little use. Standing around with all of the philosophers and learned men who merely desire to speculate about God and fill their heads with worldly knowledge wasn't fruitful in bringing about conversions. It didn't pierce hearts in a way to bring about repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ because it isn't merely the mind that needs to be renewed. It is the heart that needs to be transformed. Jonathan Edwards, who is not only one of the greatest American preachers, but also one of the greatest American thinkers, commented in his book, Religious Affections. There is a distinction to be made between a mere notional understanding, wherein the mind only beholds things in the exercise of speculative faculty, and the sense of the heart, wherein the mind relishes and feels. The one is mere speculative knowledge, the other sensible or sensed or felt knowledge in which more than the mere intellect is concerned, the heart is the proper subject of it, or the soul as a being that not only beholds, but has inclination and is pleased or displeased. Edward's point was that we mustn't simply think on God in a speculative manner, but we must know God in our hearts by faith. We must experience the power of God, see his beauty, taste his sweetness. This is what reshapes our desires and transforms our hearts to long after him and to pursue him. Paul seemed to have learned this lesson in Athens. So when Paul came to Corinth, he resolved to do one thing. He tells the church in Corinth. 
When I came to you, I was done with all of the arguments. No more lofty speech or wisdom. No more fancy rhetoric or eloquent words. For I decided to know nothing except Christ in him crucified. I limited my speech to a demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men. But in the power of God. Paul knew that he must preach the gospel, that Jesus Christ had come into the world, that he had died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to many followers. But his preaching wasn't aimed at the head only, but also the heart. So it didn't need to be pretentious. He could set forth the gospel plainly and simply. He could give witness to what God had done for us in Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ had given his perfect, sinless life as a substitutionary sacrifice for the atonement of our sin. That he had suffered the penalty of our sin on the cross to satisfy the wrath of God in our place in order that we might be forgiven of our sin justified in God's sight and set at peace with God in him. That this message of God's grace in Jesus Christ was enough because the gospel is, as Paul says in Romans, the power of God for salvation to all who believe. The gospel doesn't need embellishment. It can speak for itself and through it, God can and does pierce the heart and bring his elect to repentance and faith. Paul knew the reality of perishing men who are blinded to the light of Christ. Those who are lost in darkness will view the gospel as utter foolishness. Why would God, how would God come and die for sinners? They would reject that they themselves were sinners in need of salvation, or they would in their pride refuse to believe that they could not save themselves by their own righteous deeds. Those whose hearts were hardened to the gospel would not all of a sudden simply receive it because it was delivered with eloquence or cleverness. This is why Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 4 that he refuses to practice cunning. Or to tamper with God's word. But, Paul states, by the open statement of truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul didn't believe that watering down the gospel or embellishing it, telling people what they wanted to hear or saying it in a way that they wanted to hear it would have any effect to save sinners. He did believe, however, that the gospel rightly and boldly proclaimed in and of itself was used by God to pierce the heart, to lead sinners to repentance and convert enemies of God into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. God's word, after all, does not return to him void, but will accomplish that which he purposes. But Paul didn't just proclaim the gospel with his mouth. His life bore witness to the validity of the gospel he preached. So he, he pointed to himself and said, look at my life. Look at my weakness. See what, that what I proclaim doesn't rest on human 
wisdom or power. See instead the ways in which the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ is alive and at work in me. Look at how I am dying to myself by God's grace. Look at how I serve those around me and concern myself with others in imitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at how... With my eyes set on the glory of God and my heart set on the hope of the resurrection, I am willing and able to endure adversity and hardship for the sake of the gospel. These were not qualities of those who were promoting false gospels or worldly philosophies. But they were qualities that allowed his life to mirror his message. You see, Paul understood that his task was to faithfully and unashamedly preach the gospel and to rely on the power of God at work through the gospel. But it was also to demonstrate through his life the authenticity of what he proclaimed with his mouth. He came making the cross of Christ central to his life, seeking to know God's love and grace through the sacrifice of Christ, allowing his life to be crucified with Christ, putting to death his fleshly desires and following the way of Jesus Christ by devoting himself to be a servant among those whom he ministered. This is what he meant when he said he wanted to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. He sought to conform his whole life to the gospel. And this is important for us today as we celebrate the 200th anniversary of First Presbyterian Church here in Starkville, Mississippi. Because the legacy of this church is that from its foundation. This is what Cyrus Kingsbury, the Presbyterian missionary who came to minister to the Choctaw Nation in Mississippi over 200 years ago, did. He took a page right out of the Apostle Paul's playbook. You see, when Kingsbury arrived at what was known as the Elliott Mission in western Mississippi in June 1818, the Choctaws were very suspicious of him at first, and rightly so. After all, those who had come from outside their community had not always come with good intentions. So the Choctaws did not openly receive him and his family into their community. There was no welcoming party to greet him when he arrived. They didn't want anything to do with him. Therefore, there was no way he was simply going to argue the Choctaws to Christ. He wasn't going to be effective coming to them with lofty arguments for why they should depart from the traditions that had been handed down to them and to place faith in Jesus Christ. The reality was they didn't trust a thing he had to say. So rather than coming and immediately setting up a church, as was often the custom, he came to them determined to simply know Christ and him crucified. He set up shop among them. He cultivated the land. He began constructing homes for the families who joined him. He built a schoolhouse, a millhouse, a blacksmith shop, a granary, a stable, a place to store lumber. What he was really establishing, though, was a Christian community in their midst. And in the process, he made himself vulnerable to them. He demonstrated to them that he was willing to serve them with humility and endure hardship on their account. 
He practiced radical hospitality by inviting them into his life and sharing what he had with them. And thus, through a winsome witness, he revealed to them the love of God in Christ Jesus. He was there to show them Christ, not just through his words, but through the entirety of his life. And Kingsbury was convinced that by living an exemplary Christian life among them, that he could show them the excellencies of a life submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It was a life that he believed contained an inherent attractiveness about it. This is what scripture teaches after all, as the apostle Paul would later say in his second letter to the Corinthians, that Christ through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So he was determined to show them a life and culture redeemed and empowered by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And in doing this, his ministry among them exemplified the wisdom and power of God. It was not flashy or gimmick, gimmicky. There was no trickery. He sought simply to live a quiet humble and kind Christian life, seeking to gain the trust and friendship of the Choctaws by treating the tribe's people with respect and equality, which can only be found by those who understand what God has done for them in Christ. And it proved to be the key to his success. As we know, he was right that the Choctaws would take notice of this Christian community in their midst. They did indeed. And when they began coming, Kingsbury and his colleagues welcomed them, fed them, shared with them their tools and techniques, ministered to them. When he opened the school in April 1819 at Elliott Mission, there were only 10 students, most, mostly children of the missionaries. By the middle of that year, though, the school was bursting at the seams with 80 students. Because it didn't take long for word about Kingsbury to spread throughout the Choctaw people. They recognized he was very different and what he offered was exceedingly good. Which led to Kingsbury leaving Elliott Mission in November 1820 to establish what we know as the Mayhew Mission. Which is, was much deeper into Choctaw Nation. And as we know, Kingsbury experienced even more success at Mayhew than he had further west at Elliott. He had gained the Choctaws people's trust and with it their ears, which allowed him finally to clearly proclaim to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. The conversions then did not come quickly in his ministry to the Choctaws. He, with great patience and trust in the power of the gospel, took the road of a long obedience in the same direction. And in the end, it was recorded that through his ministry to the Choctaws, 340 souls came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Alleluia. And what he was able to realize through his ministry and his love for these people was not just conversions to Christ. He saw the gospel begin to transform the culture of the Choctaws. They left their pagan lifestyles. They gave up drinking heavily. Their families were strengthened. Education was embraced and pursued. Infanticide was abolished. A system of justice was established. They desired to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. What an amazing 
legacy Kingsbury has left for us and his ministry to the Choctaws. Even to the end of his life, having journeyed with them to Oklahoma, continued to minister to them until his death in 1870. He committed himself to knowing Christ and him crucified by his willingness to suffer for and with these people that he came to love. So on this 200th anniversary, we should give thanks to God for Cyrus Kingsbury and his ministry, but we should also seek to honor his memory by seeking to resolve to know nothing but Christ and him crucified in our own lives. For this legacy that he left us is not only our past, but it is also our future as the church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century in America. We live in a nation which is turned away from God in which the foundations have begun to crumble in the name of pursuing worldly progress, where confusion and chaos abound, where civility has ceased to exist, where division and fear reign, where morality has become subjective, where right is called wrong and sin is celebrated, where everyone does what is right in his or her own eyes. The gospel has never been so needed, but so rejected and opposed in this nation's history. In such a culture, we have to be, as the Apostle Paul, unashamed of the gospel message and confident that it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We also better know as followers of Jesus Christ, as his church, there is no other way to salvation than to repent and believe through the hearing of the gospel. So this is no time for us to close ourselves off from the world. It is not a time to be silent as the church of Jesus Christ. It is a time to be what Christ has made us to be, salt and light. But we aren't going to win people to Christ by developing eloquent arguments or shouting the loudest. The lost aren't going to come to Christ because we are posting pithy things on Twitter and Facebook. It isn't effective evangelism. Nor are elaborate marketing schemes or clever church programming. The reality is we don't live according to the world's wisdom and power. What the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians is this, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Satan has created strongholds, hardening people against the gospel by way of stirring up hostility, division, fear, hatred, pride, selfishness. God has the power to destroy these strongholds and to defeat the kingdom of God darkness. But he does not work according to the ways of the world. It isn't through military might. It isn't through manipulative schemes. It isn't through worldly wisdom or power structure. So what is it? What tears down people's objections to the Christian faith? What tears down their hostility to believers? What tears down selfishness and gives unbelievers ears to hear? It's a power of the Holy Spirit working through the winsome witness of his people, those whose lives mirror the message they proclaim. The weapons he employs through his people are things like selfless and humble service, a devotion to sacrificially and compassionately care for others, an intentionality to forgive, a commitment to truth and justice, 
a life of honesty and integrity. Here's another one. The regular practice of Christian hospitality, which invites neighbors into the home with the goal of making neighbors family in Jesus Christ. This is the weapon God gives to Peter when he sends him to Cornelius in Acts 10. This is what led Rosaria Butterfield to Christ. If you don't know her story, I urge you to look it up. Read her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. She was a lesbian professor of literature at Syracuse University, specializing in queer theory and doing research in opposition to the religious right. And then she met a humble Presbyterian who began to regularly invite her into his home to have table fellowship with he and his wife. And it was there that she was given a glimpse of the all-surpassing greatness of knowing God in Jesus Christ. It made her realize that her life was seriously lacking. It was there that she could no longer hold preconceived notions about how judgmental or bigoted or hateful Christians are. Because what she experienced was love and grace and forgiveness. It was there that she encountered God's word in all of its power. It was something as simple and as extraordinary as table fellowship that led her to repent of her sins and place faith in Jesus Christ. God employs these weapons to create an awareness in a self-absorbed, sin-infected world that his kingdom is utterly different from the ways of this world. He employs these weapons to create longing for the goodness of his kingdom. He employs these weapons to tear down barriers between people in order that ears might be open to hear and hearts might be softened to receive the good news of Jesus Christ. Cyrus Kingsbury had a strong grasp of this. He understood the power of these weapons in his ministry. So let me encourage you this day in this way. We need to continue the work of Cyrus King, Kingsbury using the methods he employed. They are biblical methods. They are methods that rely on the power and wisdom of God alone. But it isn't just for the sake of converting those around us who are like, like us. We also need to continue his mission to the nations. We need to have a passion that Kingsbury did to see people of every tribe, tongue, and nation converted to Christ, to the glory of God. This is what God has instructed us to do. Our calling as a church of Jesus Christ is to give witness to our resurrected Lord in Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. But those of us who have colleges and universities in our community should realize that God has brought the nations to us. You don't have to travel to the other side of the globe because the nations are right down the road on University Drive. You can minister right here in Octobaha County as Cyrus did. So are you seeking to evangelize them? Or are you letting them go back to their own countries, having never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and experienced its power? I pray we are seeking to share the good news with them and all those around us. And I hope that we are doing it by inviting them into our homes for a meal. Showing them how a Christian family loves and cares for one another. How we pray together and sing hymns together and read God's word together. How we share the blessings God has given us with others. 
And as we do this, I pray that God would continue to bless the ministry of this church and grant success in bringing many conversions to Christ. And to God be all the glory.